stepping into a subject this morning, um, honestly, that we can't fully know. It's actually different than the topic of pain and suffering because we're going to narrow it down a little bit more. And we're going to inquire of God about his role in evil things that happen in the world. It feels a little presumptuous. Job's friends tried it, and they completely missed the point. And I remember asking, well, why should we then think that this morning we can resolve the issue of God's involvement in suffering? And it's filled with pitfalls because we all have experiences where we have known the love of God. And we also have experienced suffering that seems to contradict that God is loving. And we live with the tension that says God is in control because he's all-powerful. So then is God responsible for the tragic things that occur in life that stem from evil? And why would God allow a person to die a painful and torturous death. And where was God when a child's kidnapped and abused? And how can so much evil be done in his name and he doesn't stop it? And we could go on. But it doesn't really serve any purpose. It's simply making statements that leave us empty but doesn't point us in any helpful direction. Can God suffer? Then Jesus went with his followers to a place called Gethsemane and he became very sad and troubled and he said to them, my heart is full of sorrow. To the point of death, stay here and watch with me. And after walking a little further away from them, Jesus fell to the ground and he prayed, My Father, if this is possible, don't give me this cup of suffering, but do what you want, not what I want. And Jesus went a second time and prayed, My Father, if it's not possible for this painful thing to be taken from me, and if I must do it, I pray that what you want will be done. So Jesus prayed a third time, saying the same thing. The people who arrested Jesus led him to the house of the high priest, where all the leading priests, the elders, the teachers of the law were gathered. And the high priest asked Jesus another question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed God? And Jesus answered, I am. And some of the people there began to spit at Jesus. They blindfolded him and beat him with their fists and said, prove you're a prophet. And then the guards led Jesus away and they beat him. So Herod questioned him at considerable length and Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the experts in the law were there and vehemently accusing him. And even Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And then dressing him in elegant clothes, Herod sent him back to Pilate. But Pilate knew that they turned Jesus into him because they were jealous. And Pilate asked, so what should I do with Jesus, the one called the Christ? They all answered, crucify him. Pilate asked, why? What wrong has he done? But they shouted louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he could not, he could do nothing about this, and that a riot was starting, he took some water, he washed his hands in front of the crowd, And then he said, I am not guilty of this man's death. You're the ones who are causing it. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's palace and they all gathered around him and they took off his clothes and they put a red robe on him. And then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged severely. And they struck him repeatedly in the face. And using thorny branches, they made a crown and they put it on his head and put a 
stick in his right hand. And then the soldiers bowed before Jesus. They made fun of him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on Jesus. And they took a stick and began to beat him on the head. And after they finished, the soldiers took off the robe, put his own clothes on him again, and then they led him away to be crucified. So they took Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place called the Place of the Skull. And they crucified him. Can God suffer? Does all this suffering make sense to you? Could God not have used another way to pardon sin? And throughout the Bible, we read of how God is saddened. He's grief-stricken. He's filled with longing like a parent for a child who's ruining his life. Do you ever wonder why the creator of everything knowingly made a creation that would cause him so much pain? It's time for us to pray as a house. And if you feel comfortable praying with those around you, I'd encourage you to break into groups. Two and three. Otherwise, I'd encourage you to quiet your hearts and invite Holy Spirit to protect this room. I'm going to ask you to pray that this becomes the closed session, that it is not open to the demonic realm, that God will open our minds, soften us, Allow us for a moment to take the baggage that we carry and just lay it aside and that he would come and he would speak to us in ways that we could understand. So I'd invite you to pray now as a body. Thank you that your will can be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. Thank you that you can actually create sacred ground for us, that we can actually sit in your presence, unobstructed, that this is a holy place today, in this time, and that you, in the mysterious way you do it, you not only make all things new, you give us the capacity to either understand or to believe. And so we're asking for both. <clears throat> we're asking for both because we want our confidence in you to be restored. For some of us, we want our faith back. Some of us, we miss you. And it's good to be with you now for these next few minutes together. So Holy Spirit, direct our time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, church. You are so inspiring when you start off that way. <laughs> You're a brave house. You're a brave house. I'm proud of you. I love being with you. I love the journey we walk together. And we stand together asking God to give us more understanding about his nature and specifically about suffering and how those two worlds meet without contradicting the other. And I'm thankful for you. I'm also thankful for those who have gone before us, who've wrestled with this topic. And if this is a point that you want to study further, and you want to explore some, some areas in this, then I have a couple of recommendations for you. The first would be by a book by the name of a man named Gregory Boyd. The book is God at War, the Bible and Spiritual Conflict. And Boyd skillfully 
skillfully looks at history and he talks about this is a common theme throughout history. Like every civilization, in fact, almost every single religion acknowledges the fact that there is this demonic element that is out there that we have to fight against. This is not a new thing. It isn't reserved even just for Christianity. And he takes history and he looks at it. Boyd, when he, when he draws our faith into this whole discussion and into his research, some of the things that that he then has to begin to wrestle with is, so how much does God actually know about this? Does he limit himself? Not. So that's one book, if you want a study on this. Another one that I would bring to you isn't so much a book, except there's a lot of writing on it. There's an awful lot of talks on it. It is a, um, it's a way of processing this information called Molinism. And it is named after a Jesuit um, theologian in the 16th century, Louis de Molina. And he skillfully tries to take these two postures, the, the Calvinistic posture that says God is in control of absolutely everything and history just simply plays out whatever God intended and the Arminian position that says, well, actually, we have free will and we have choice and there is grace. And what Molina does is tries to find this middle ground. And so there's one more that I'd like to introduce to you. And if you actually want to become more of an activist, in the area of injustice, in the area of violence, and speaking out for people who don't have a voice, you may want to actually join walkfree.org. And it's a global lobby activist group. And uh, I've actually joined it. I, I regularly get involved in petitions that, that this organization puts out there. And it does change. It does change policy on a global scale. So you may want to be interested in that. It's important, the reason I bring this up, it's important because there is absolutely nothing wrong with being a student that searches out the mysteries of God. And I'm encouraging you to step into your faith, to not blindly follow the teaching of an individual, but to look at the different teachings that individuals present and then go back to Scripture and test it, to see if it's true. Just be careful that you don't limit God. Because sometimes circumstances can seem so big and we have such a love for him that we create, we create these theories that then kind of, we kind of feel like we buffer him and protect him in the way we think and process because it, the situations become so difficult to understand. Know this, he has given us the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose. And that purpose is expressed in that the Holy Spirit knows the mind of Christ. Paul says, don't be conformed to this present world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind so that you may test. You may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. Things that no eye has seen or ear heard or mind imagined are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And guess what? God has revealed these to us. How? By the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And we in Vineyard, we come from a rich heritage where we seek to hold intentions intention truths that seem to contradict each other and so here here we go again we're in one of those discussions that deals with god is in control and we have free will the god who controls everything allows us to choose now he's not going to be confined to human logic None of us want a God who is so small that we can actually fully know him. So if our search for God does not move us beyond the things that we understand, then we will never discover anything new and we will miss out. And for many in this room, our view of God has been distorted because of our own fathers. Our own fathers misrepresented what God the Father is like. They maybe didn't give you the attention that you needed because they were so involved in work 
Or maybe you actually had an abusive father. And for several in this room, your fathers were pastors and missionaries who were so committed to doing the Lord's work, they actually forgot that you were part of the Lord's work that he had called them to do. And as a result, we get a distorted concept of God as Father in our heart. And there's also, it seems almost to be a seething that is going on in society today when they start talking about the church. And I don't think they're talking about the people of God. I think for the most part they they lump everything into one and they, they talk about the institution. And organized religion and the institutional church many times have not been kind. And it's turned out that they have been sanctimonious. And they have been bigots. And they have been adulterers. And they have been predators. And it was all done in the name of God. So it's no wonder that wound is still raw in some of your hearts. Some of you have felt betrayed by God. You thought that He had given you a promise and it didn't come true. And the spirit of offense and resentment has taken root in your soul. And you're not only angry at the church, you're mad at God. The question is, was he to blame? Isn't it true that we all have a need to blame someone when things go wrong? When pain moves into our lives? We have a felt need to understand the why. Why couldn't they love me? Was I that bad? Why didn't God protect me? How could people do this to other people? What's the matter with me? Why didn't God answer my prayer? In 1994, I experienced the genocide in Rwanda. And we sat each night at a bar. And I listened as drink began to loosen the tongues of UN soldiers. And the same question came up every single night. How could this happen? We would go over all the things. Why is this nation shipping this stuff in? What happened to the, the UN? Why did they make those po- policies in the Security Council? What is going on with these embargoes and, and all of the, And it just began to be so overwhelming, we came to the conclusion, we have to stop asking this question. Because there isn't one answer. We also knew that if we pursued this question, actually believing we're going to get a final definitive answer that we can now say, this is why it happened, we knew we'd go crazy. There is sufficient suffering that is birthed from evil and it flows indiscriminately hurting everybody. There's the genocides, there's the Columbines, there's ISIS. You know the list. And there is also evil that actually targets good. There is a demonic realm that honestly wants to see good discredited and destroyed. The Bible describes it and describes Satan specifically as being like a lion seeking people to devour. But the Bible also comes back and talks about us, the people of faith. And in Hebrews 11, it says, and what more can we say? For time will fail if I tell you of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms. They administered justice. They gained what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength and weakness, became mighty in battle, put foreign armies to flight, and women received back their dead, raised to life. But there were others. Tortured. Not accepting release. To obtain resurrection to a better life. And others experienced mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. 
sawed apart, murdered with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, and the world was not worthy of them. They wandered the deserts and the mountains and caves and openings in the earth. And these were all commended for their faith, yet they did not receive what was promised. For God had provided something better for us, so that they would be made perfect together with us. Those people, those people believed something that whether they experienced it in this life or in the life after death, they believed it was true. They believed it enough to be willing to die for it. And for most of my life, and I'm very thankful for this, since my youngest memories, I was taught that there are some things worth dying for. And I suspect that most of us would agree on that point. We may not all agree on what those things are, but these martyrs believed that their faith was true. And Job, when he went through this horrible experience in his life, he comes out with this statement that even though God kills me, I am going to trust him. Now, I know that doesn't make sense to many of you. And so we're going to touch on that this morning. And we're going to begin by examining the God who is. Well, Lord, you examine me and know. You know when I sit down and when I get up, even from far away, you understand my motives. You carefully observe me when I travel or when I lie down to rest. You're aware of everything I do. Certainly, my tongue does not frame a word without you. Oh Lord, being thoroughly aware of it, you squeeze me in from behind and in front. You place your hand on me. Your knowledge is beyond my comprehension. It is far, so far beyond me. I am unable to fathom it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee to escape your presence? Certainly, you made my mind and heart. You wove me together in my mother's womb. I will give you thanks because your deeds are awesome and amazing. You knew me thoroughly. My bones were not hidden from you. And when I was made in secret and sewed together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was inside the womb. All the days ordained for me were recorded in your scroll before one of them came into existence. How difficult it is for me to fathom your thoughts about me. Oh God, how vast is the sum of them. This is the God we know. Scripture states repeatedly that God is all-knowing. Every thought, the number of hairs on your head, each sparrow when it falls... And we are in danger of limiting that aspect of God because it is too great to comprehend. And when we hear humanities or hear of, in, of humanity's inhumanity, of the cruelty, we begin to wonder how God could know that and not stop it. And we love God so much we step into that place wanting to protect Him. And we explain away the inconsistencies. And we bring God down to a level that we can at least try to understand. And so we talk about God intentionally limiting himself. But you know what? That does not comfort me. The fact is, God is the all-knowing God. Nothing is hidden from his sight. No creature is hidden from God, but everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must render an account. So what does God know? And how does it work with our ability to choose? Now remember this, a forced choice is not a true choice. It's coercive. 
And just as it is true that God is all-knowing, so it is true that God does not coerce. You have freedom to choose. And I would suggest to you that God's knowledge is far more complex than you and I can even imagine. We think and logically process information all the time. But for the most part, we do it with the restrictions of time and space. God's not limited to time and space. God created time and space. So imagine how that influences what he's capable to comprehend. When God sees creation with none of these time restrictions, it's into that context that it says God gave us a free will. So what did he give us? When God knows the outcome of our future, how much of it is decided by him and how much of it did we choose for ourselves? You see, God created you to experience what he would say is the absolute best. But to experience it at its absolute we also had to, or he also had to allow you to choose it because you wanted to choose it. And I want to suggest to you that God not only knows what will be, I would suggest to you that it's very probable that he also knows what could have been. There is the future that is known by God because he has already seen it happen. When you step out of the constraint of time, then understand your future in God's sight is as present as your today is. And so I guess he sees it all at once. I don't know. But the point is, he knows the details of history, including the future. But let's take it to another, another level. Let's assume for a moment God knows all possibilities. And when I walked in a refugee camp in northern Uganda, and we were dealing with these kids who had been abducted as children, and they were forced to, to murder one of their friends or family members, to harden them, and they were drawn into... Coney's Lord's Resistance Army, and they became these child soldiers and lethal in their killing. When, when battles went on and these kids were, were rescued and brought out, they were then put in these camps where, where we worked with them for years to deprogram the insensitivity that had been instilled in them. And I remember time and time again, I would look at, I would look at a, a kid and I would say, God, why did you have me born in Canada? Why wasn't I born here in northern Uganda? Why am I not one of these, these little black boys who have been hauled off into the jungle and forced to kill? Why was I not that seven-year-old boy who was abducted a year and a half ago with one of his best friends, hauled off into the jungle, blindfolded, tied, and given one choice, kill this kid. Kill your best friend or he will kill you. And then with a gun to his head, screaming in his ear, hit him, kill him. And I do. God, why was I born here and not there? If God knows everything, I am inclined to believe he also knows every possibility. He knows how this me would have responded in that situation. I don't believe he created the situation. What I witnessed was man choosing to be cruel. God was not forcing them to be cruel. I saw humanity choose to do what they did. God did not coerce them to cruelty. 
But he knew me. And he knew what I could handle. And he placed me here. He doesn't force my choices. Our choices do, however, affect the environment around us. And he determined which environment you and I are going to be exposed to. And I don't know why that boy had to live in the environment in which he did. But one thing I do know about the environment in which he lived, it was profoundly influenced and shaped over the last 15, 20 generations from tribalism and colonialism and the slave trade and the corruption, and poverty, and destitution. And every one of those things has ripple effects from generation to generation until you find yourself in an environment that is completely debased, which is a direct byproduct of the decisions that humanity made, not that God made. Jesus was frustrated with the people of Capernaum He had been there many times. He had performed numerous miracles, but they didn't change. And in that context, he makes a very interesting statement. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You're going to be actually thrown down to Hades. Why? For if the miracles done among you had been done in Sodom, it would have continued to this day. In other words, it wouldn't have been destroyed. Have you ever seen the movie Back to the Future? What would be the consequence if Marty McFly changed something in the past? One thing. It would just have this incredible ripple effect. One act would completely change the future. And that's more or less the point that I'm trying to make this morning. I would suggest to you that God knew all possible scenarios and he chose this one to play out because this one would produce the best scenario. That this one, this version, is the best one when all the factors of human choice are drawn into the equation. And there is enough biblical evidence to support the thought that God also considered all possibilities. That he knows what might have been. He knows that if you had been Peter, and you were standing outside the high priest's courtyard that night, God would know whether or not you would have betrayed Jesus. Why am I pushing this point? Because of the scriptural support for God micromanaging his creation... And the scriptural support for him longing for us to choose him because of our love freely given of our own accord. And he looks at our heart to examine our motives. He's not going to coerce you to love him. So we hold those two truths equally. God knew before the beginning who would decide what. And I believe God knew that if he had allowed any other scenario, it would have produced a far worse outcome than what we see in the world's history today. Now that is simply a faith statement on my part. But I make the statement because of all that the Bible says on this topic. I believe this scenario is the one where the effect of grace will be most profoundly felt. And I say that because I'm convinced the Bible clearly declares that God is love and he's not willing that anybody, not anybody, should perish. And I believe in cause and effect. That God established principles when lived by will actually create momentum, remarkable harmony, prosperity. And when we disregard them, well, I think John Wayne says it best. Life is tough, but it's tougher when you're stupid. (laughs) When God's love is rejected, we create evil. Every action we do 
produces a spiraling ripple affecting many people, our children, our children's children, their children's children. And we may be doing it because of things we experience or our parents experience or our grandparents experience. Scripture talks about the sin of past generations. In one way, it's our Marty McFly experience. You can have good without having evil. But you cannot have evil without first having known good, but you chose something else. Evil is the corruption of good. Evil is what results when we choose to reject what is good. And humans use free will to reject God all the time, and we end up creating evil. And when evil happens, we blame God. We turn around, and at times we have our fists in the air, and we shout at God, and we cry out, Where are you? How could you let this happen? Why didn't you intervene? A forced choice is not a choice at all. And when Paul was in Athens, he came across an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And he called the people together and he said to them, what you worship without knowing it, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it who is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives life and breath and everything to everyone. From one man he made every nation of the human race to inhabit the entire earth. Notice this, determining their set times. And God fixed the limits of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope around for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each of us. For in Him we live and we move and we exist. God will not coerce. He will not overpower someone. He has so providentially constructed the world that every person who would respond to the gospel, if they heard it, are placed in times and places where they will hear it. God knew what Pilate would decide if he was governor in Judea. He knew what Herod would do if he was king. He allows those things to weave together because he knew what they would choose. Paul speaks in Corinthians, we speak the wisdom of God hidden in a mystery that God determined that God determined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it. If they had known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But it is just as it is written, things that no eye has seen or ear heard or mind imagined are the things God has prepared for those who love him. But when the appropriate time had come, when the appropriate time had come, God sent out his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we may be adopted as sons with full rights. In Christ, we are set free by the blood of his death, and so we have forgiveness of our sins. How rich is God's grace, which he has given to us so fully and freely, God with full wisdom and understanding. God with full wisdom and understanding. Let us know his secret purpose. This was what God wanted. This is what God wanted and what he planned to do. It through Christ. The goal was to carry out his plan when the right time came. When the right time came, that all things in heaven and on earth would be joined together in Christ as a head. Understand that grace is not irresistible. We can honestly choose. God respects people's wills. 
And some say, well, if God knew from the beginning of time what I would decide, then doesn't that negate my freedom to choose it? And I would say, no. Just because God knows what you're going to do doesn't mean that he made you do it. So why did God create human beings he knew would reject him? Because it's a consequence of free will. I would suggest to you that it may not be feasible for God to create a world where all choose him of their own free will all the time. His plan is universal salvation. He isn't willing that any should perish. But it would seem that even though we know that, many prefer the temporary satisfaction they get from doing whatever they want. Is that God's fault? Is that God's fault? To be honest, I think some will find fault with God no matter what he does. If he gives too much freedom, then he's accused of endorsing evil and incapable of stopping it. If he reduces our freedom, we would call him a tyrant or an egotistical manipulator. And there are many things we do not know about God, but the things we do know include that he is bound by his own nature. He cannot contradict himself. He is more than the definition of love. He is the source of love's definition. What love is, it's God. He is the source of life. He made you in His image and likeness. And whatever that means, it makes you infinitely valuable to Him. And He has gone to extraordinary lengths for you to enjoy all that He has prepared for you. But it still is your choice as to whether or not you will humble your independence to the point of both trusting in Him and obeying Him. Nobody, nobody wants to suffer. We all hate pain. And some here today have experienced evil in your lifetime. God did not create that evil. God intended you to have Him. And what makes suffering especially hard is when we blame God for the events people created. When people are injured... Did God force that individual to drink too much? Did God force that individual's employer to be so, so determined to get as much money out of everything as he can that he laid the guy off? Did God force that employer's father to spend all his working hours so pursuing money rather than relationship with his son? Did God cause that employer's father's father to grow up on his own, abandoned by his own dad while his mom worked three jobs? What's the point? Life is more than one stone being thrown into a pond with ripples going out. Life is a pond that just had a dump truck full of gravel dumped into this pond with Thousands of ripples all colliding into each other, all moving out. And I'm suggesting to you, God knew this. God knew what we would choose. He knew the consequences of what we would choose. And he says, if I'm going to give him free will, I have to live with that chaos. But I am still going to sit in sovereignty over this. And I will bring good back out of this. Because I love them. Man, humanity is responsible for our own actions. While God continues to intervene in his own loving way. And guess what? He taught me and you what that loving way is. You and I know many of the things God has invited us to do. If I asked you, how does God want you to live? You could probably fill a page. 
It's not that we need to know what God wants us to do. What we need to know is what will we choose. What will we choose? Because our choice will have a ripple effect. We need to stop being mad at God. We need to stop carrying the spirit of offense. We pray for miracles, often without much thought as to how we or others have actually partnered in creating the situation we're asking God to deliver us from. And amazingly, at times, He actually does deliver us. But there are other times He allows life to continue down the path that we or others have chosen that directly impact us. Solomon said, The intentions of the heart belong to a man, but the answers of the tongue come from the Lord. All a person's ways seem right in his own opinion, but the Lord evaluates the motives. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord works everything for its own end, even the wicked for the the day of disaster. The Lord abhors every arrogant person. Rest assured, they will not go unpunished. Through loyal love and truth, iniquity is appeased. Through fearing the Lord, one avoids evil. When a person's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he even reconciles his enemies to him. Better have a little with a righteousness than to have abundance of income without justice. A person plans his course, but the Lord directs his steps. Church. Church, it's time to rise. It's time to stand. It's time to declare that we trust God. That we believe that we are loved by Him. He says, draw near to me. I will draw near to you. I love you with an everlasting love. And it is still your choice. Today you and I are invited to surrender to an all-knowing God, an all-powerful God, a deeply personal God, the creator of heaven and earth, because he loves you and you are valuable to him. I'd like to invite you to stand. If this is an issue you want to deal with this morning, I invite you to just put your hand on your heart while I pray. God, we acknowledge that you're great, that you know me, you know each of us in detail. You are the Lord of heaven and earth. You love me. I'm infinitely valuable to you. Where I have doubted you, Please forgive me. And I repent. I have chosen things in life outside of your teaching. I repent. I want to stop doing that. I embrace living daily in the kingdom of heaven on earth. I declare that you are sovereign. I declare your goodness. I declare your faithfulness. I declare that you are the definition of what Father should be. 
And I break off every distorted perspective of fatherhood that rests in this congregation. I pray that you will bring healing to the fathers who are broken. And that you will bring healing to the children who have suffered because of that brokenness. I pray that you will raise up within them a picture of you that is safe. That they can come and they can sit on your lap or they can stand in your embrace and you love them. And you give back to them what they have missed in life. For those who have come so close to giving up on you, so close to walking away from their faith, I call you back to the one true God. I call you back to be courageous and to stand and to not give up but to take your eyes off the things that have wounded you and to put your eyes back on the cross. To put your back, your eyes back on the place that becomes your source of life and your source of strength and it becomes your hope that we would know the future, whether it's in this life or in the next, that it is worth dying for. That in comparison to being with you, nothing, nothing can substitute your love for us. So Jesus, we stand here this morning. We stand here this morning having wrestled with this question of evil. And Lord, we ask that rather than that, you would take us back to you. You would take us back to this place where we can choose and allow us, Lord, the joy of knowing our salvation again. And to that end, to that end, may you be honored and glorified in each of our lives, but also in this house. That we will stand for you. That we will walk on holy ground wherever we walk. Because your holiness abides in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.